Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Tonight, I'm joined by our elite, irregular panelist, Bruce Garrick, and we're here to welcome you to a new year and a new winter of wargaming. Yeah! Happy New Year, gamers! Uh, Bruce, I know that you sort of took the lead on today's episode, but before we before we dive into that in particular, uh, we, we should sort of set the stage a little bit. This is now our third uh, Winter of Wargaming, which I think had grew from an offhanded remark I made to you, I think, yep. like three years ago. Mm-hmm. And now it's become kind of an annual feature of, of Three Moves Ahead. And uh, so I'm curious, like, when you, when you look forward into this Winter of Wargaming, What's on your agenda? What are you really excited to hit and discuss uh, with, with, with this year's with this year's edition? Well, I mean, there are a few things. So I feel that uh, there's a lot of interesting and exciting stuff going on in wargaming. Um, it happens to mostly be on the board wargame side, but there are some interesting wargames on the in the digital space. I hate saying that word, but I'll use it here, uh, which we haven't touched on. Uh, I'll be very interested to talk about uh, decisive battles from uh, VR design, and we'll also talk about Rule the Waves, which is everybody's darling game from um, 2015, and then even War in the West, which uh, came out a year over a year ago. Yeah, 2014, I think. Yeah, and we haven't touched on it, but I mean, it's huge. War in the East was was a momentous release in the history of uh, digital wargaming. And I think War in the West is a really important release that we need to talk about, does a lot of things. So we'll be addressing all of those things. Um, And we'll have some interviews. And we'll also have a show about Ancients Wargaming with a very interesting tie-in. So I won't spoil it, but uh, everybody do not miss the Ancients Wargaming show. Yeah, it it seems like we've got a pretty strong crop here this year, and, and partly that's because when you when you leave a game like War in the West lying there for a year, uh, it certainly it certainly uh, makes it look like suddenly you're, you're, the next winter of war gaming has certainly been bolstered yes. uh, by that. But there there are a lot of interesting things in, in this in this crop, and in particular, like with decisive battles and rule the waves, I, I kind of am excited to sort of explore how like uh, sort of these high level organizational uh, views on wargaming are, are going to sort of affect the the, the day-to-day play, uh, if you will. Because these are both games that try to inject this element of realism in, in the sense that uh, warfare is not just this purely abstract thing happening between two sides fighting over objectives, but there's also a process negotiated between uh, political leaders and, uh, like, you know, general staff officers and officers in the field. And so in decisive battles, you have this this element of, uh, you know, you sort of have to be responding to dictates from on high and constraints from, from on high. And then dealing with issues uh, bet- between, you know, sort of peers, uh, uh, you know, on the command staff. And then in Rule the Waves, you have a game which is very much about, as much about designing a navy and creating a doctrine around the navy you've designed as it is about naval warfare itself. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I think that it's very, it takes something that's been in gaming for a long time, this idea of, you know, design your own ships and uh, goes back all the way to things, well, before this, but certainly things like Master of Orion, where a big part of the game was getting technology so that you could build ships and then you would see how they fared against your opponents. And Rule of Waves is a very interesting concept and takeoff on that because you have financial incentives to do certain things, but then you have strategic incentives to do other things. And it's sort of the confluence of these factors that, uh, first of all, got me running back to uh, 
Robert K. Massey's Dreadnought. I've just uh, been rereading that as well. Yeah, and when I was dissatisfied with that, um, I went back to Paul Kennedy um, and The Rise of Anglo-German Antagonism, which is actually a much better book, but um, uh, we can discuss all of that when we get to the uh, point. But the, the ultimate thing is that Rule the Waves is a great game, and um, we need to talk about that and the things that it does, and really how it um, it just proves that gameplay pretty much always trumps everything, I think, at least in my book. So what have you what have you got for us tonight, Bruce? So tonight I did an interview with, uh, I said that the a lot of the interesting thing, things being done in wargaming or in the board game space, and I've interviewed Randy Lehan, uh, who is originally from Minnesota, Minnesota, but now he's from Wisconsin. Uh, he runs Legion War Games there, and he's an independent war game publisher. And the reason that I chose to talk to Randy is that I'm very interested, fascinated, I'd even say, in the economics of working publishing and the ability now with, you know, the advances in graphic arts and the lower price of components for people to realize their designs and some very interesting designs and sort of the, the evolution that's of game design and, and skills that have transformed the hobby, I really think. And sort of show how that's been brought to the public by publishers like uh, Randy and um, other um, publishers like um, Revolution Games and uh, and even GMT. I mean, GMT is really an independent publisher, man. Just there are a few people um, running a company, Victory Point Games. These are all small companies, but we get most of our really good board games from this kind of publisher. And um, I just I thought it would be interesting to talk to him. He's a very nice guy, and he had a lot to say. And uh, I tend to, one of my favorite, I think possibly my favorite war game, close to my favorite war game of all time is now uh, Kim Kanger's Dien Bien Phu, The Final Gamble, which is published by Legion. Uh, so, And we had I'm, a great uh, show on that uh, yeah. earlier this uh, yes. earlier last year. Last year, yeah, I talked to Kim. So uh, all of that wrapped up into a discussion with a guy who's just, plugging along, making great-looking games, and in most cases, great-playing games. I don't want to burn, uh, you know, burn Cass as it is and sort of dive into the interview we're about to hear, uh, but I am curious because I know a lot of our listeners don't uh, aren't necessarily hardcore wargamers, right? And I think there's this perception mm-hmm. yep. of wargaming as sort of, sort of being uh, almost locked in the Avalon Hill days, right? right. Little right. cardboard counters, yep. huge hex grid maps, yep. uh, which is in some way actually a vision that is maybe closer to being true of the PC space yes. uh, than it is uh, of the tabletop space. But I am right. curious, like, do you feel there's been sort of an increase in uh, sort of accessibility and playability uh, in sort of current generation war games uh, that sort of is divergent from perhaps the way war games, tabletop war games are imagined to be? Oh, yeah, I definitely think so. And I think that the big thing I've talked about this, I talked about this with Mark Herman on um, the Designer Notes podcast that Soren Johnson has. And if you haven't listened to that, you should jump over there and, and listen to the talk I had with him. Which is all, uh, also on the Idle Thumbs Network at Idle Also Thumbs. on the Idle Thumbs Network, Soren Johnson's Designer Notes. Um, so the thing about board gaming is that it's really been transformed, uh, I think, and he thinks and a lot of other people think by the internet, sort of connectivity and people being able to find each other and actually play games against each other. Mark made the very interesting comment that, you know, he's designed games for four decades, and he was designing, I think, games in the old days, 
not for competitive play, which is very important. They were games that a lot of people would simply get, take out of the box, and play against themselves. And in situations like that, obviously, you, you're, you're sort of playing out, playing a system and playing out a situation and int introducing your own sort of imagination and not really trying to beat somebody else. And so, therefore, mechanics that don't work well against another player or slow the game pace down don't really matter because you're the one that's playing. You're always involved. And I think the Euro craze, you know, we're already, you know, two decades on from, from the inception of that in the United States. But the idea that people needed to be engaged in the game that they were playing and you had to engage multiple people all the time or frequently has led to a change in the way that board games were designed. And I think that people were less willing to accept abstractions when they were just sitting in front of a hex grid. And that's the thing that they, you know, they wanted to set up these units and meticulously move them around. And it didn't matter that it took an hour to do a turn because there was nobody waiting for them. I think as soon as they started waiting for people to make it to do a turn that lasted an hour, they quickly realized that it would be a lot of fun if they could actually play these games. And I think that that is a reason for the divergence of computer and board war games, because in a computer game, you just sit there and obsess over every little detail, and it takes as long as you want. Whereas in a competitive board war game, you kind of need to get them going. And I've had the the real good fortune, I've had a little time off over the holidays um, to play some games. And the games that I've played, particularly uh, Mark Herman's Churchill, which I got another playing in, of and Mark Simonich's U.S. Civil War, which is a fantastic game that is a really uh, just great two-player game where we're always playing, we're always involved, we're always looking at things, and the, the mechanics are simple, but it's a very rich game. These are games that I think um, have really evolved out of people's experience getting together over the internet, meeting each other, going to game stores, going to each other's houses, taking out games, saying, okay, it's dinner time. We, I need to go to work tomorrow. Let's play this. You know, my kids are, you know, in school or going to sleep or something like that. I have this period of time. I want to play a game. And that imposes very different constraints on designers. And those designers have done a great job of sort of, um, you know, picking up that challenge and, designing great games and people like randy randy leon of legion war games are the people who are sort of the conduit for these great ideas to us the game players and i wanted to talk to randy about how that works and how he experiences it and just a little part of the hobby that i don't see because i'm not a game publisher all right so to kick off the winter of wargaming uh this is randy leon uh, with Legion War Games and Bruce Garrick. Enjoy the show. Good evening. You're listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Bruce Garrick. Tonight, I have Randy Lean, who is the owner of Legion War Games, a, an independent war game publisher, board war game publisher. Uh, Randy, welcome to the show. Bruce, thank you for taking the time to uh, talk about games and game publishing and all the fun that's involved in all of that. Well, there's, we'll see how much fun there is actually involved and how much is just uh, the old backbreaking work. The thing that sort of got me interested in talking to you was, uh, well, first of all, you're coming from, from Wisconsin. You're, you're talking to me from Wisconsin. Um, and uh, I, I wasn't sure how to pronounce your name. It's pronounced Leon, you tell me, but because that's uh, it's actually a Norwegian name. And uh, are there a lot of Norwegians in Wisconsin? You're from Minnesota, though. Is that correct? 
Correct. Yeah. Grew up, born and raised in Minnesota, moved to California for a decade and a half, and then ended up in Wisconsin. Okay. And you have some family history uh, in the military, some Norwegian family history. Tell me about that. We were discussing that before the show started. Yeah, it's it's very interesting because it's 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 quite unique. My father was in World War II. He's he's passed now, but he was in the thick of it, and um, he was in a a very special unit called the 99th Infantry Battalion, separate. Separate. I, separate. Yes, because it wasn't assigned or associated with any other higher echelon unit. It was its own standalone unit, and and. Basically, what it was, it was it was it was a, a an elite unit that was it consisted only of either Norwegians or Americans with direct Norwegian descent, hmm. and they had to have a working knowledge of the or be fluent in Norwegian, and if if um, if at all possible, already knew how to ski because they were going to be a ski a ski unit, and the idea was that they would be if, if push came to shove into Norway they would be able to to drop in there, not not airdrop, but right. landed in there mm-hmm. and then and then work with the population and, and be able to be able to move around and, and and so they were gonna fight on the skis. So they trained in Camp Ripley in northern Minnesota hmm. in the in the depths of the of the winter. Yep. And then they later went to Camp Hale in um, Colorado. Hmm. And that's where the tenth Mountain Division trained. And so then, so that's where they did their training, and then they never actually went to Norway till after the war. After mm-hmm. the war, and then the entire battalion got down. Did they fight anywhere else, or, or were they just sort of held in? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. They they just I said they didn't make it to Norway till after the war when they, when they went there, and then they're presented with a special uh, 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 award or medal or, or some such. I can't quite recall what it was, but from, from the king of Norway. Hmm. So it was all kind of interesting in that aspect, but they did. They were they were in England on um, for D-Day. They didn't, they didn't partake in D-Day, but they went over shortly after. Um, they were involved in clean, the cleanup of Cherbourg once that was, once the peninsula was. Mm-hmm. Cherbourg Harbor, yep. Yeah, they, the cleanup and, the, and mopping up operations there. But then they later found themselves uh, in Malmendy in December of 1944, <laughs> and oh. so they were they were involved in the Battle of the Bulge. Oh, so and the the were they involved in the massacre? I mean, as, as uh, no, victims? no, they were not, but they were involved in the in the incident where our own planes were bombing our own men. Mm. So he wasn't directly bombed, but some of his guys were, and gotcha. he's got some interesting stories fighting from then. They fought from there. Through the bulge and then into into Germany. Into Germany. I, there's a there's a great website that tracks it all. I haven't looked at it for a long time. I can't. But it has a has a map. Or was there a map in the book? One of them. But it tracked the entire all of their operations and in, in great detail. because it it's, it's a very unique unit. So anyway, website. Um, it is 99thBattalion.org. Okay. Well, I should just say 99Battalion. 99Battalion.org. There you go. Okay. Well, the listeners can uh, can look it up and learn some uh, World War II history that they didn't know. I certainly didn't know. Yeah, um, no, I mean, most people won't. But although there is, in some of the Battle of the Bulge games, there's a little 99th Infantry Battalion unit. So I could actually play with huh. my father moving around on the map. I can't remember which game. It must be in uh, Bakdam Rhine. 
and a couple of other ones too. I believe. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Well, everything's in Vaktam, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. So, so I, or, so I guess you could also make a game of it because you are uh, you're an independent uh, war game publisher. How long have you been doing that? I, I did it with a, a desktop publishing company called Kyber Pass Games. Mm. That's how I got my start. Okay. And then about six years ago. Not quite, but almost six years ago, I started Legion War Games. Six years ago, Legion War. Wow! So, wow! So, two thousand and nine. So, I think I, I, uh, I was. I don't think I was uh, buying your games at the very beginning, but shortly thereafter, I think. Uh, I think my first game of yours was B twenty nine Super Fortress. Um, that actually was a Kyber Pass Games release. If you got the original boxed version with the slip cover. Yes, I have that. Yep, that's actually from Kyber Pass Games. That oh, was, wow. That oh. was our first boxed game. We had done one game prior to that with Die Cut Counter. So it, Kyber Pass, it was desktop publishing when I joined it. Mm-hmm. And uh, we worked our way up to Die Cut Counters and then boxed versions. I think we had three boxed games. And then once the, the people in that in that company decided to go their separate ways, that's when I started these more games. I see. Okay. Well, that, that I mean that's a very that's a very attractive addition. The um, B uh, between and Super Fortress. That, yeah, uh, it's, it's amazing that I'm, I printed a second edition with Legion War Games, mm-hmm. and uh, it's still selling very well. And it's been six, seven, eight years now. So it's yeah. still one of my. It is my overall my best selling. Well, overall, be your best selling game. Interesting. It's uh, for the listeners who don't know, but who are probably googling it right now. It's a uh, it's a solitaire war game about uh, about flying a B twenty nine bomber. It's very similar to um, B seventeen um, Queen of the Skies, the uh, old uh, Avalon Hill game that sort of set the standard for you know what what solitaire games were back you know back in nineteen eighty eighty four eighty five or so. Um, it came out eighty one actually. It was well. It's eighty one from uh, on Target Games, but it it didn't come out from with. Did did Avalon Hill release it that early? I don't think so. I'm not sure. I just know that uh, I was looking it up just the other day because I was going to do a little bit of ad. Because as we'll segue into this, I have a new version of B twenty of B seventeen Queen of the Sky coming. Is that time over Target? Target for today. Target for today. Okay, that's it. Okay, well, we definitely will talk about that. Okay, that's an excellent. And I segue. just googled it. I mean, I just went on Board Game Geek to see when eighty three. I'm going to guess. Yeah, and well, I said 81 um, there. So that's why I said, well, 81 is my target for today is going to come out in 2016, so but 35 years later. Yeah, that's well, the, the uh, and this is minutia that our, our listeners probably are, are rolling their eyes, but uh, I have the original uh, B-17 Queen of the Skies from what was, there was a, a company called On Target Games, and it literally looks like, um, it's actually, I submitted the uh, the images for the Board Game Geek for the, for the On Target Games version. I mean, it looks like somebody took some cardboard and, you know, uh, and a crayon and a typewriter and sort of pasted together. That's the real desktop publishing, you know, circa 1981. So that when that thing came out, I mean, it, it really looked like, uh, um, it looked like somebody's kind of junior high school art project. Um, but the, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing how, how games have, have progressed since that point. I mean, it just, just in the last, I'd say 10 years, I mean, so the, the, the quality of the, um, of the things that are coming out is really amazing. And people like you can, can, can produce, what looks like you know an um, just an amazing um, physical product. And that should be something that the listeners should understand. Is that you know you're a you're an independent game publisher, but there is nothing about your uh, about your products in terms of their physical presentation that isn't completely professional. Some of the nicest uh, editions I have on my shelf are uh, Legion War Games editions. 
Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that, that nod to excellence. I, I've really tried. I mean, it, it's just been from the beginning that I didn't want to just make mediocre games. I mean, they're going to want them to be the best they can be. And that's in on all aspects of the design development. That's a little trickier part, but the, the direct control I have over the components is, is yeah, the, nothing goes out of it isn't as good as I can make it. Right. And well, that, that clearly shows, I mean, I, I really, I really can't uh, stress enough to the listeners that uh, you really get a, an excellent physical product when you buy Randy's games. So uh, tell me a little bit now. So you have, you know, you're, you're trying to make games that are, uh, you know, as, as good as they can possibly be from every aspect, as you said. Um, how do you, how do you go about, let's say you want to, um, do you go looking for the designers or do people come to you or is there a mix? You know, what, what goes into uh, a new war game coming out from uh, Legion war games? When, when Kuiper Pass Games disbanded, part of the deal was is that I would take all of the games that they had up for pre-order and uh, publish them. Okay. So I, I inherited uh, half a dozen, maybe even more than that, maybe nine. Nine games came with me. And, of course, just being new, I mean, I had done, I'd done die-cut counters and I had done boxes of slipcover boxes mm-hmm. for Kyber Pass. But, so I, I wasn't brand new at it, but, but I was learning a lot, and I still had a lot to learn. Hmm. So it took a while. I mean, the first game came out in 2010, mm-hmm. and that was Saipantinian from Michael Taylor. And, uh, or was it E.C. Sela France? No, that was done with Kyber. No, that was done with. You see, say La France, the first edition. I have, I actually have both editions, but the first edition is the slipcover edition, and that came out. Uh, I think that was a regular Legion War Games version. That was, yeah. I, I was, I was confusing it because I was thinking Saipantini was the first one, but it was the first one with an official box. Mm-hmm. I did do Kim Kanger. He was his was the first game I released, the first edition of EC Say La France, and that was with slipcover. See, so even at that time, I I hadn't found a vendor that could produce a box of significant of quality that I wanted, mm-hmm. but at a price that I could afford. Because let's face it, I'm not GMT. I'm not making three or 5,000 copies. So, you know, I'm not getting things at the price that they're getting. Things gotcha. At, you know. So I came over with a bunch of designs and it's, and it's, they kind of are, some of them are still on the list. I hate to say that, but mm-hmm. that's just the, the facts of it. So while I was trying to get all that and, and I was building my reputation and people were seeing that I was doing these different things. Then even before I could get the list of games cleared, more people were coming to me and it's just been recently. And that's why I did the, the huge 20, uh, 20 game release for a pre-order just last month, because I had so many people were coming to me for, with their designs. So mm-hmm. I very rarely search out designs, but on two occasions I have, because I had, and to this point, never produced a game on World War II East Front, one hmm. of the most popular topics there is. Right. And no design submissions were given to me, so I actually uh, re- uh, inquired if some people would be interested. One person was Vance von Morrison. Oh, yeah. He, he he'd, um, had Damien Shield. as He had three games that he was toying with, and I said, yeah, that's the one I want because it's not been done before, and, and it's got the right scope and scale, and both sides get to attack. And then another one was just a brand new designer who's doing a block game on, uh, well, well, it was Black Sea, Black Death was the original game. Black Sea, Black Death is a, is a, um, uh, was that people's war games? I, I have a feeling it was a, was that a Jack Rady game? 
I believe that is correct. But was it people? I have to look. I'm thinking. Yeah, I think it might be. I'm trying to picture the cover in my head. Okay. And I believe it was. And uh, I don't think the subject's been done since then. So I said, oh, yeah, because he goes, I, I'm a new designer, but I've been in a relationship with this guy for a while. He did some podcasts, and I was helping them and stuff. And I said, well, if you can, if you can do one on this battle, that would be great. And I just expected just kind of a normal hex encounter game. But he came back with a block game that's very kind of interesting and, and the novel approach. So those are the two instances where I sought out some sort of a design. The rest of them are, were just people would contact me. And the, and the more my reputation grows and the more people know that I'm doing this off-topic stuff, mm -hmm. the more people are coming to me. So that that's why the, the CPO release that I launched last month, the 20 games, started off at, I don't know, 15. But in the last month, I got like five additional games just because that's, that's how much people are starting to understand that not everybody's going to be able to make money at, like I have a game on there called Zeppelin. Yes. And and it's a big game and it's not a cheap game and, and the designer the designer had taken it to two other companies, I believe. One was going to and then it fell through and another one I can't remember exactly the whole story. But anyway, so he came to me and um right at the last minute, right before I did this launch, I added like maybe a month before, which is kinda last minute since it, it took a long time to put everything together for that launch. But he got dropped in right at the last minute and I thought, Well, if people buying Target for today and B twenty six Marauder strikes they might have an interest in this Zeppelin game, World War One Bombers. It's not technically a solitaire, <clears throat> slightly different, but still not so undifferent because you're in one Zeppelin. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously you're commanding the whole raid, so there might be five or six Zeppelins, but each Zeppelin is in itself moved and, and you know, and, and does its bombing mission. So you might be controlling five, but you're really just doing one at a time. And it's done very well. So just the, the, getting a reputation for lesser game topics. So is that something that you're you're sort of cultivating? Do you want to be known as the uh, the public? Cuz I mean you've got just to to tell our, you know, our listeners a little bit about. I mean you've got a, you've got games on everything from the Siege of Malta in 1565 to a game about the Berlin Airlift, which I think I, I'm frankly I'm fascinated by um, the idea that you could make a game about that and then you have all sorts of things in between. Uh, you've got, you know, a sort of uh, ancient naval system. You've got uh, English Civil Wars. You've got the um, – you have several games about uh, sort of Canadian-American uh, conflicts. There's the Northwest Rebellion. There's the Fenian Raids. I mean, you have – I mean, there's there's such a such a, an amazing variety of, of games. I mean, I, I, I found myself on, my, on, your, um, on your website – the uh, the day that you're the, either the day or the day after the the um, uh, I think we'll tell the listeners what what happened was that you had a whole bunch of games that you just basically said okay here they are uh, come pre-order them and uh, I remember going through that list and just going oh that Russo Japanese War yeah I'll sign me up for that and uh, oh S Russian Civil War game yeah I'll click on that too and I think I ordered something like ten of the twenty games and I noticed now that um, like the Russo Japanese War game. Uh, and the, the the actually Tachanka the um, uh, the Russian Civil War game uh, that's those both have already met your pre order uh, limit the, the yeah two hundred fifty copies that's fantastic so, uh, well thank you but just to so no one gets a, so I don't get a big head those two games were some of the inherited games so those have been on the list for years I see they've been gaining support over the years and and you know being relatively new. Five years ago, 
I mean, a certain number came over with Kyber Pass, but those were maybe, maybe those people wouldn't even be interested. It's hard to say exactly. So some of those came over with, and those were two of the games that have been on the list for a, for a long time. The 20 brand new ones, um, if you go to the website, you can there's a section that calls new CPO editions for mm-hmm. 2018. Those are the 20 brand new ones, but Target for today, the, the remake of B-17 Queen of the Skies, mm-hmm. Expanded. I shouldn't call it a remake because it also includes the B-24 and various models of both of those airplanes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's already past 200, so it's at 210. Yep, so I see that. That one is, and, and B-26 Marauder Strikes, very similar game, but with a different plane, is uh, over 100, 115, I think it is now. So those have climbed up very rapidly mm-hmm. because they're, they're, they've been talked about for a while, so at least Target for today has been. People knew it was coming, and finally they're able to pre-order it. So as I get more people aware of me and, and how the CPO system works, and I call it the CPO system. It stands for Customer Pre-Order okay. because I didn't want it to be just another P something. Right. At least set myself apart. Again, I just like to be a little different with these things. And um, then I'm hoping that these numbers will go quicker, like like – Obviously, Target for today is a little bit of a rarity, but we've got three or four games that are already over 100 in less than a month. So that's almost halfway there in a month. So, I mean, I would like to have a game go on, get the pre-orders, go through production, come out in your hands in 18 months is what I would like to do. Now, that's not going to happen for a few more years because I've got a backlog to clear. Right. And uh, there's there's different states that games come to me at. But Yeah, that's an interesting thing. So you, you said 18 months, 18 months meaning... What uh, you know? What state is a game in when it comes to you that you feel you can turn it around in eighteen months? Assuming that the pre-orders are there, is that a, is that an idea or is that a prototype or what? What do you get when when somebody comes to you? Uh, mostly, I get um, fairly complete designs. I mean, it's never. It, I mean, there's sometimes where it's just an idea, but oh, that's only like let's just say it's Andy Lokes because Andy Lokes did Taloon for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, not for me, but he designed it. I published it. You know, we're best of friends. So it was a, a no brainer when he started designing it that I was going to be a publisher. Right. Now his waning crescent shattered cross, which is Malta 1565 mm-hmm. is really, was really no more than an idea when, when we put it up on, on when I told him we were going to put it up and that was yeah. at the expo. And then he had a few more months and now he's got a prototype map and counters and roughed out rules. But when I said, Oh yeah, let's do it because I liked the idea and uh, I thought it was a little more expensive that maybe there was going to be a problem with that, but his are way over a hundred. So he's over a hundred CPOs in less than a month. So yep. apparently the, the topic and the interest is there. And, and if it costs that much to make that game, then people are, are willing to buy it. Yep. So in that instance, because it was a designer I had worked with, I was fully confident that he could do what needed to be done. So therefore it was just an idea. In other instances, Demian Shield from Vance von Boris, virtually complete. I mean, he does his own design, development, and play testing. Okay. So there's an instance where I don't have to do much. Zeppelins came in virtually complete. I mean, I, I'm going to put it through some more play testing because the designer and I haven't worked together. But from the AARs I've read and the other stuff, pretty good. Um, so, so they kind of it, it depends a little bit, but mostly they're they're pretty finished. Because I don't have a dis- development staff or a, a, a following of people like, say, GMT does that they can count on to, 
to call up and say, you know, we've got this new game. How would you like to be the developer on it? Right. I just don't quite have that following yet. I mean, I have Kim Kanger, who has agreed to not only do his own designs, he's doing Heart of Darkness. Now yes. he's working on three other, developing three of them for me. So, and that's going to help speed that up. And as, as I get, you know, more of a reputation, I'll be doing less and less hands-on myself, and then I'll be running the company and doing all of the coordination that needs to be done. Got it. I mean, I still like to do map graphics, so I still might get involved in that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, and, I, and the cover art, I do almost all of the covers. I mean, in one form or another, I do the covers, even if, I have, even if I'm taking a painting and, and buying the royalties right. to use it. Right. So, um so mostly me, they're they're on the complete side. T- well, tell me tell me about because this is um, something that our uh, our uh, listeners might not know about. So there's you know in it we do obviously we talk mostly about video games on this podcast, and they, they would understand development as being much different thing from board game development. Tell tell the listeners how important a developer is uh, when you know somebody has a prototype game to say, hey, here here's my game, uh, I want to publish this, and you say, gosh, this needs development. Well, tell, uh, explain a little bit about that. Well, development is, it means different things to different people. Mm-hmm. And um, certain people, certain designers, I mean, a game needs a designer, a game needs a developer. I mean, it just needs to have those things. Typically, and most people would say this is the way it should be, the designer and the developer are not the same person because the designer is too close to it and they can't look beyond and they can't see outside the box about what might be the problems or just because they read a rule, they've written the rule, they've played the rule, they don't always, they won't be able to look at it without having some prior knowledge. When they read the sentence, they'll know what it means. Right. Or somebody else might read the sentence, the rule, and think, That's what is it means this, something different. So the, the traditional school of thought is you have a designer, hands it off to the developer, the developer works with the playtest teams, and, and to work to work out these issues of maybe rules that are confusing or play balance or victory conditions and such. And the design and then the developer will ask the designer the question. The, de- the designer doesn't always have interactions with the play testing. That's the way the traditional model works and the way people would most often do it. There are some designers who can fully develop their own games and there's they can do both, and they can look at it so objectively that they can do that. One of those is Kim Kanger. That's one of the reasons I have three of his games published is mm-hmm. because he can do that work, and I don't have to find somebody else to do it. The other one is Vance Von Boris. Mm-hmm. And well, Vance has been at this forever. Right. And he's done a lot, and he's worked with developers and designers. and I mean, he, you know, he's worked not with designers, but developers and such. So he has a really good idea. So, I mean... When he said he wanted to do another game with me, which is just fantastic that, that a designer of his caliber thinks that my production values and, and attention to details and such is good enough that we can, you know, put out a product that he's going to be proud of and I'm going to be proud of. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, he, he can do the design development, and it's great when they come with their own play testers. The third one is Steve Dixon, who's done. He did B29. He did Picket Duty. Now he's doing Target for today. Mm-hmm. Designs he develops, but he has a co-designer, so he, they kind of work together. He worked with Sean Reif on on uh, B29. He's working with Bob Best on Target for today. Uh, but he comes with his own playtest team, too. He has playtesters all over the world. He's, he's got an incredible stable of people who want to playtest his games. So in those instances, 
things can move along a lot quicker because they're they're handling all the logistics of the game, and I'm just doing the production pretty much. Right. Um, another one that came in was um, the four battles in Spain. The the, the uh, I'm getting confused on which series it is now, but by DDA Roy, mm-hmm. um, his I mean he ran Pratt's and Editions games, so he he's done everything I've done. So when he said he wanted to work with me on this, uh, on on producing his next game. He did all of the design, development, playtesting, and artwork, and I'm pretty much just doing the productions of it. So that's why that one sped through the sped through the process. So, and, and then finding developers is very difficult. I've had a few people who want to do it, tried to do it, didn't realize how much work it was going to be. It's, yeah. it's a lot of work. It's almost as much work as designing the game, maybe sometimes even more. Right. And there's very little pay in it for the developer. Unfortunately, yes. I mean the designer has to kind of give up some of his fee to the developer because I can't say that you're going to get this percentage and he's going to get this percentage, at least not with only selling, you know, a thousand or 1200 games. Right. Again, if I was 3000 games or 5,000 games, then there's more your production of each cost per game goes down. So you theory, your profit for each game should go up. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit more money to spread around. When it comes time to pay designers, if they can do the design and the development, they'll get more money from me than if they if I have to hire a developer or right. somehow split it off with with the developer. So, so let's say somebody comes to you. I mean, uh, with a with a game, it's the greatest game that uh, you've ever seen. Are they going to get fantastically rich? How much money are they going to get for a for a for a for a game? Uh, if, if how much could, could they expect to get as a, as a fee? Well, the, the board wargaming market is very small. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a niche hobby, and it's probably a sub-hobby in, in mm-hmm. board games. So there, there isn't a ton of money to be made, and they're not going to get rich. So they're not going to be buying a, a, a Gulfstream or anything like that? They're not going to be buying a Yugo or anything <laughs> like that. Um, you know, it, it, it varies. Of course, it varies. You know, it depends on on the level of experience they have. Mm-hmm. Each designer is kind of, I look at it as, you know, have I worked with them before? Mm-hmm. You know, are they a repeat designer for me? Are they a known designer? Are they a new designer? Does their game need a lot of additional development work? You know, it, it depends on a lot of that. And it's all based on royalties are paid on okay. uh, percentage of the sale price of the game. Oh, the, so, so people are paid on, so, so you, Let's say you sell a thousand copies; they're going to get a paid a percentage on each of those thousand copies that's sold. Correct. But I assume that you have to, but the majority has to go to you, right? Because the production costs are significant. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the way the pre-order system works is it, it kind of it pretty much covers my production costs. Okay. So there's not a cash outlay on my part. So that that helps a lot. Uh, I see. So 250. So so you have just for the listeners that uh, don't know that there are 250 is your threshold for uh, a game that's ready to be published. Once 250, uh, once 250 pre-orders have been made, you then uh, roll the presses or at least get it into final development, uh, you know, sort of prep everything and it's going to, and it goes to the press. What, um, and, and that's, <clears throat> that's a, uh, that's a, that's a break even point for you. Yeah, that's, that's a, a break even point for, Direct costs. Okay. Now, 
you start figuring that of those 250 copies, the designers are getting a cut. That's not really taken into account. But I know that if I sell 250 direct to the public, I'm also going to sell almost an equal number to distributors, retailers, and online stores and stuff like that. So I figure, so if I'm looking, I've got 250 pre-orders direct to the customer. I've got another two, 250 going to the to the, the the distributors and the online retailers. The CPO, or the pre-order customers will pay the direct bills. I have to pay to the printers. And then the other develop the, the, the distributors and online retailers will give me the money to pay just the royalties on all of the copies. Plus, then I'll start to earn some back. Okay. So if I just sold the 250, I'd, I'd virtually break even, but I would have been paid nothing I for see. doing gotcha. anything. And then the designer wouldn't have been paid either. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So I mean, if if if, if I'm selling 250 copies, and if the pre-order price for, say, what, typically it's $50, give or take. Sure. You know, so, so I've got $12,000-plus to, to pay for the boxes and counters and charts and rolls and all that sort of stuff. Now, who are you paying? Who, who actually makes these things that, that we uh, we so so lovingly open in the, in our dining rooms and, and, and marvel over the components? Who, who who's, who's making these things? If... I mean, it can be done by one company, but that would typically be a company in China. Okay. So you would contract with them and say, I want 1,500 copies. And that's kind of the, the threshold that they work under if they can produce 1,500 copies of a game. Okay. Then they, they, they will do it all and, and send you a shrink wrap box game that's done. Okay. Of course, that comes at a cost. Yeah. I mean, the cost of printing it in China is less, mm-hmm. but then there's other costs. There's shipping costs and mm-hmm. and, and just other things that are that are being done. Okay. And um, it's very difficult to work that distance if you're not used to it. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I, I live in Wisconsin, and that's not uh, your typical. Seems like game publishes is either East Coast or West Coast. I'm one of the few that's right in the middle. Right. But the, the good thing about that is that Wisconsin is chock full of printers oh. and paper suppliers. It used to be the king of the world for paper production here okay. in Wisconsin. And there was a, a there's a glut of, of printers here. So my production costs are a little bit less than what they're going to get on the East Coast, West Coast, hmm. just because of that reason. Tons of paper mills over on the west side of, of uh, Wisconsin. Okay. So that, that's helpful. Uh, and I wanted it to be all local. I wanted it to be so if I had an issue, I could drive to the, the farthest I would have to drive at this point is three hours okay. to any one. So no one company does everything. Okay. The counters are done in a, in a series of companies in a three-step process in three different cities over two different states. Making die-cut counters might sound difficult. It's ten times more difficult than it might you might think it to be. Hmm. It's the backbreaker of this industry. Really, it's so difficult to find someone who can do it of the quality that the companies re- or the customers are used to. Now, you were actually doing. I'm, I'm going to point out that you were doing this interesting thing where you were not only die cutting your counters, you were really die cutting your counters, where you had die cut them to such a point that you don't even have to. You, they just would fall out of they're like a like a nice. Uh, Kansas City baby back ribs they just fall right off the bone these fall right out of the uh, out of the tree and you don't have to trim them or anything um, 
are you still doing that? And how, 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 how difficult is that? Difficult wise, it's almost impossible for me to do it now. I, I started doing that and those were called easy punch counters. Yes, that's what they are. Because easy punch. you could take the counter sheet, bang it against the table and the counters, all of them would just fall out. Mm-hmm. 95% would just fall. Right. And you were, you were actually shipping them. Sh- the, the counters were shrink wrapped separately so they wouldn't fall out in the box while it was being shipped. Yeah. Well, I made that mistake of not shrink wrapping them one time and that was <laughs> the B29. And uh, some of the people got their games and they were already pre-punched and they weren't very happy about that because a lot of people don't play the games. They like the mint games. They like to keep them that way. And yes. they like to photocopy the counter sheets. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I had to have them shrink. I had to have them shrink wrap. So an additional cost, an additional uh, step in the process. Right. But the only way I could make those counters, it's a special board that gets used. And the, and the reason I was using that board because I was having the counter sheets, printed on adhesive labels, mm-hmm. I would peel off the adhesive label and I would stick it on the board itself. And then I would flip it over and do the backside. Mm-hmm. And I would do this by hand in my house. So if you think Cypantinium was my first game, thousand copies, three counter sheets per copy, yep. double-sided, yep. stacks of counters, and the amount of work that I had to do was just incredible. It would take me five, six weeks just to do that. Oh, and then they God. all had to be boxed up. Uh-huh taken to the die cutter here, which luckily is local for me, and I didn't have an additional shipping cost. So I got to a point now where my print runs are getting much bigger, and I just don't have the time. I, I don't have, if I'm releasing three games, I don't have three or four months to just spend bent over a table. Uh-huh. Neither does my 55-year-old back like being bent over a table <laughs> for endless hours. So no, I'm not doing the easy punches anymore. Oh. There are some games that will still come with them, because I Adobe Walls, for instance, and and B29 Super Fortress, those were produced prior to me going the other way. And so there are still some games that will come with them, but none of the new games will have them. DNBN Foo didn't have them. Had a, had a version semi. DNBN Foo's game, uh, I mean, if they didn't, then you sure fooled the heck out of me because when I got it, I mean, they all sort of, it, it was, it was, it was great, whatever it was. So, so well, can we? The NBN Foo wasn't technically the easy punch, only because it was it was a different it was different. But those were shrink wrapped, and those were even more. Those were easier punch. I had a tough time even shrink wrapping them when and not spilling the content mm. of the of the thing. So that was a trial to get to the next stage. But if we tried something with a because we had to use a different material and a much harder stock. Mm. We tried the easy punch with the die. It didn't work. Okay. So, but we had no choice. We were committed. So there was nothing to do but to be very careful with the die cutting mm-hmm. and the shrink wrapping and get them to you guys. That's why some of those games had uh, color color copies of the counter sheets, so you could see everything that was in them without taking the shrink wrap off. Because yep. once the shrink was removed, it, it the counters were falling out. I the, see. the next one was Taloon, and that did not have easy punch and. I did not shrink wrap those counters because there was no reason. Okay, interesting. So I don't know if we got if we got off topic there. No, that's exactly what I want to hear. I mean, I'm just I'm just fascinated. So that so that so die cutting counters is as I thought. I mean, it's something that would be technically difficult. But you, I I would assume that just getting the die cutter to, um, especially if you have um, if you have counters that are very uh, you know 
sort of detailed. You want to make sure that they're all centered. You want to have the front and back aligned so that when they actually cut it, it doesn't chop off numbers. I mean, all the things on the counter are very important. Um, they shouldn't look, you know, skewed. You shouldn't have, I remember, uh, you know, in the old days, you know, there were some victory games seemed to had have real problems uh, die cutting their counters. You would have these sort of rectangular counters that, uh, I mean, you just, the stacks looked horrible because there was a, you know, there was a counter that they were supposed to be, you know, half inch by half inch. And one would be like, you know, I don't know, seven sixteenths by nine sixteenths. And it was just, it was just terrible. That's when they were, that's when they were used to make the dies and they would actually take a piece of maple. I mean, they still use maple, but they, they would take and they would hand cut with scroll saw or whatever it was that they were using. Now they use lasers to cut. So the, the cut and the rule and everything is much more precise. Interesting. But the reason that die cutting is so, it's the most expensive part of producing the game is, is the die cut counters. And it's the most, the reason that it's so difficult to find somebody because there's no volume, there's no, there's no profit in them to, for them to do it. You know, if, if you're, if you can die cut for Settlers of Catan, which sold 14 million copies, if mm-hmm. someone were smart enough to have made all 14 million in the beginning, <laughs> or even a million copies, right. then that might be worth somebody getting involved in making dies and die cutting and going through all the work. I'm just so fortunate that the guy that I found, it took me years to find him. And oddly enough, I worked at this company, worked at this company for 13 years and we were located in one building hmm. for like six years. And I was looking for two years to try to find someone to die cut. Turns out they were two blocks down the road from me. Huh. It took two years to find them. And this guy just cares. He just cares so much about the quality that he, he's the one who came up with the easy punch and, and all this other stuff. And, but getting the fronts and the back aligned is is crazy difficult to do, and that's the reason I did it by myself. There's a there's a handful of companies that can do it, but they they weren't local to me, and and I again I wanted to have my process in my backyard so I had more control. Um, but you know, so now I've moved away from the Easy Punch, but I've got a local source who's really good, and and I thought now we're making the front back alignment a different way. So that seems to be helping us then. Wow. Because, I mean, I can tell you, because if you're spending that much money in the, in the, and it's wrong, first time I tried it, it was wrong. And the company said they could do it, and they didn't do it. And, of course, that leads to, you know, animosity. Who's right. going to pay? I don't right. want to buy something. It was a nightmare. But it, it, we sorted it out to the best of our ability and then moved on. But, you know, it's a, it, I could get... I would pay twice what I pay now if I could just send somebody my order and never have to think about it. And then just six weeks later, walk out to my shipping dock and find them out there. And and they were perfect every time. Well, I was going to say, that's a dangerous thing to say on the air, but it sounds like if that's, that's never going to happen because you're always going to have to, uh, to, to get involved in that kind of stuff. Um, Yeah. But, but I've got some, I've got a good process now. And even though it's, it's a, like I said, three cities in two different states, it's not as easy as just that. The people kind of know what they're doing now, so that's helpful. Okay. I, I have to have less involvement now. Okay. Um, so <clears throat> there are all these, you know, you've you've obviously uh, developed a, a following and, you know, you've been around for a while. You have, you have this uh, um, reputation for the uh, a game being you know on, on sort of offbeat topics and you have a high high quality um, 
uh, high quality component reputation, but what goes into your decision? So, you know, somebody comes to you with a game and says, hey, I've got this game about, I don't know. I've got this game uh, about the, well, say Kim Kangers, that's what's kind of easy, but he said he's going to have this game about the exploration of Africa. Um, or, you know, your friend says, I have a game about the uh, siege of Malta. What goes into your decision? Yes, I'm going to go with this game or no, sorry, you should go talk to somebody else. Well, those two instances that you pointed out, that I've worked with them in the past. Right. Yeah. That's so, so, so yeah, those are bad examples. So I just, I was just uh, thinking. No, no, not, not, not necessarily. I mean, Heart of Darkness from Kim Kanger. I mean, well, Kim Kanger did Easy Sail of France and right. then he did Pumpkin, right. which was a, a reprint actually of a Victus game. Yes. And then um, Dien Bien Phu. I mean, very, very similar topics. French military, mm-hmm. colonial period. I mean, not colonial period, but post-World War II right. and all. So those were kind of all right in there. Now, he said he wants to do Heart of Darkness. That's a different. That's totally different. It's not even a war game at all. Mm-hmm. But it has the following from the Avalon Hills, Source of the Nile. Sure. So, and it's got Kim Kanger behind it. So, I mean, he, he's the guy who wants to make more money designing. So the only way to make that happen is, as you were talking about, how much can someone expect to be paid? Mm-hmm. Well, not a lot. Not enough to buy a Yugo. Right. Don't know what those cost right now. $1,000 <laughs> or yeah. something. You know, any one game, unless you sell enough copies, that's the only way to, to do that. Now, if, you, if, you, if you're uh, designing and, and GMT picks up your game, you've got a better shot at selling 5,000 copies than with me. But probably the GMT is not going to take a topic like uh, the Berlin Airlift. Right. Unless they saw that there was enough of a, a odd market to it. They might be, wouldn't want to pick up some of the Zeppelins or, or something. And then, and that, oddly enough, B-29, my bestseller, was turned down by GMT. Hmm. Interesting. Because at that time, this was years and years ago, they just didn't see it as being enough to sell three to 5,000 copies because they have – Warehouses, they have staff, they have insurance, they have, you know, medical coverage for their employees and stuff. They have all that stuff to worry about. I have none of that to worry about. I have virtually zero overhead because most of it's done here in my house. Hmm. When I say my shipping dock, I meant my garage. (laughs) Okay. Because it's all almost all in my base. And I do rent a small space for taking deliveries off semis because the the boxes come on a semi and I I don't have them in my driveway. But so I do run a small space, but that's really the only overhead I have, and that's why the 250 is lower. Um, I try to make up for some of that. Like when I pay my designers, I pay them higher royalty percentage than maybe some of the other companies do, and I'm not even sure because I'm not privy to exactly what everyone's getting paid. Right. It's one of those kind of secrets people don't always talk about. What, but I know that I'm paying more because I'm only selling a thousand copies. So if someone's going to get a chunk of money for each, you know, going to sell a cop thousand, but if they were with GMT, they get less, but they did it on 5,000. You, you can see where I have to think. Right. I have to also be competitive when I'm looking at the design. So I think I, but, but we were talking about Malta. Now I wasn't so sure about Malta. I mean, yes, it's, it's a pivotal point in history. Mm-hmm. How much of it can be a game when it was sold unbalanced and, but I mean, and, but Andy did wanted to do it. He had great sex with success with Saloon mm-hmm. because that was a siege game, and 
didn't really have any idea if that was going to be as popular. It's Napoleonic of sorts, because Napoleon's there. Right. Technically not Napoleonic, but sort of along those lines, but a totally different game. And then it was a siege, and but he made it work, and people loved it, and, and did very well. So I said, well, let's do your Malta game. But I wasn't, and I said, but it's so, he wants, he has a card-driven game, and cards are the second most expensive part mm, of okay. behind counters. And, and they weigh a lot, and, and I mean, there's a lot of artwork that goes into cards, kind of like counter sets, a lot of different artwork and stuff that has to be done with them. So I said, it's going to be very expensive. I said, is someone, and we talked about this at the Expo, he'll tell you, is someone going to want to pay this $90 for a game on the Steve Small stuff? He thought they would, and I wasn't so sure. I said, but we'll put it up there and we'll see who's right. And he was right. So I'm not always right, my choices. Um, sometimes it's topic. Sometimes it's it's the designer. Uh, and, and sometimes it's not that necessarily that they've done designs with me. Mike Nagel, for instance, he's done, he did Flying Colors with GMT and, and other ones too. So, I mean, there's a following for Mike's Nagel game. So that's why his ancient fleet ones, Nabor Choi, is, I said, yeah. I mean, once I saw the, how complete it was, and, and I play tested at the expo, I said, yes, definitely. Then his Captain C game, which is just ship on ship, just two ships. There's no more, no less. It's just one ship against the other ship, age of fighting sails. And uh, it didn't make it on GMT's P500. It made it to 250, 260, and it languished there for a, a while. I don't know how long, but they dropped it. I picked it up the next day and put it on my current uh, 20 game release because it's a complete game and it's a well-known designer and already has a, a, a following. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've turned down a few that were just too far out there for me. Mm-hmm. And, and even, you know, either the, the design wasn't quite where it needed to be, or the topic was just so obscure that I, even I didn't think I would make it. I mean, I've got some on my list that, like you say, the, the battles for those Canadian ones, the last invasion and the Northwest Rebellion, both have been on the list for a long time and both are just over a hundred or just under a hundred. So there's it's it's a it's a hard sell. Some of the ones I've picked, you know, maybe maybe I should not have or maybe I should drop those, but I don't see any reason to drop them right now. I mean, they're not doing anybody any harm by being there and <laughs> right. my reputation get get up to a point where a few more orders can come in. Then maybe we'll maybe we'll publish them before they get to, to 250 because if I can work out a deal with the designer and say, well, let's say I don't pay you until I break even, you know, then they will have a game published and if it doesn't make it with me, it's probably not going to make it with anybody, right? You know, unless it comes out as a desktop publishing game. Sure. Well, that's a that's a whole separate uh, separate. Yeah, uh, it yeah. is. People like I mean, people who are designers like to see their work as a boxed game, right? I mean, I worked with Michael Taylor on desktop publishing. We did two of his games with Kyber Pass, and you know, and that was fine and good and all well. But when we did his side Pantinian with me, it was the first one I produced with the official box game. Now that mm-hmm. I've refreshed my memory from earlier in the conversation, mm-hmm. and he was very happy. And his wife was very happy. They framed it, and put it on the wall. Great. It's cool to have a box game that you've designed and that somebody published and people are buying. Oh, I agree. I I completely agree. Um, with one of the, the um. I just noticed that uh, John Korkowski's The Great Game, Rival Empires in Central Asia, uh, is uh, has passed 250. So I'm yes, just did, just did. That's that's fantastic. So I'm looking forward to that. That's uh, that's something. Tell, tell me, I'm, I mean, I'm just I'm, as you're talking, I'm going through your list of games and just kind of marveling at all the, the um, uh, sort of variety of titles. What, 
What are some things that you're, I, I hate to, to put you on the spot uh, of uh, choosing, you know, one of your games over the others, but are there, are there particular ones that you're excited to, to, to hope to get to 250? If any of the designers are listening, it's theirs. <laughs> okay, great. Who's ever listening, John Heim, if you're listening, it's yours. <laughs> Michael Taylor, it's yours. Nice, yeah. nice. Okay. Um, well, good. Well, let me let me tell the, let me tell. Well, the, I'll say I'll yeah. say Decisive Victory 1918 is one of my pet projects. Okay. And, and it it was a it is, the the original design was done as a class project for Phil Sabin's class on War Game Design. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. And so it was done as this 11 by 17, real small. It was supposed to be a game that Kyber Pass was going to fit in between their bigger box games. Real quick, we could just knock it out because it didn't have a lot of meat to it because it was a class project. And, and not to say that it wasn't well-researched because the designer is actually a, has written a book on, on this very thing, the, the tanks being used in, in mass and in World War One and such. So that's one of my pet projects, and, and I've taken it on and I've expanded it to, to not just be the one sector of that offensive, but to cover the entire offensive of 1918. Yeah, the Allied offensive, not the German. Yeah, it's quite expensive. It's at the retail. I mean, the, the pre-order price is 85, but it looks like it's going to go to 120 if you don't get in on the. Uh, yeah, 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 it's um, it's got a lot of maps and counters, but the, the counter density is fairly low. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the number of counters spread over three maps is makes it isn't like there's stacks and stacks and stacks it's only in fact one division can stack per hex and division might be the three regiments or regimental size pieces for the German, or just one division size pieces Got so it. that's one of my pet projects uh you know I, and there's a lot of other ones on there that i'm real happy blenheim 1704 i was just talking to the designer about that i'm going to make a push to publish that before it gets to 250 because it's such a unique system, the seven hex system that he's got. Oh, I made a mistake there. I should have picked. He had one, uh, the same seven hex system on the Battle of Gettysburg, and I just said Gettysburg's been done to death. Let's do something smaller, quicker, huh. easier to handle, a lot less pieces, and see how the system plays. Kind of work out maybe some kinks before we move it over. I should have went with Gettysburg, and I think this the topic alone would have pushed it up. Oh yeah. It just says Gettysburg. Yeah, people will buy it. So Yeah, I mean, so that was a mistake on my part. So I just had a conversation with him. I said, we're going to publish that in 2016, regardless of what it is. And then we're also at the same time going to roll out. He must have, I don't know how many he has. I can't even, I can't even remember how many he said that he's already got designed in some fashion. But So those are two that I, and then that's not to say anything about the rest of them, because there's some great ones out there. But those are two of the older ones that, that I have a special affinity for. On, on the of the new twenty, well, that's really hard to say. There's such good stuff. I'm really looking forward to Target for today because that's going to be my new bestseller, and that's where I'm going to be able to print five thousand copies and wow. get my cost per copy down. And because I've been doing this for a long time for very little money, uh-huh. I mean, talk about a Yugo. Maybe I can buy a Yugo now after five <laughs> years. I'm not even sure if I can. Yeah. But it's it's kind of like going to college. You're paying your dues. You're you're you're, you're not expecting much now. You're in college. You're learning how this all works, how to run a business, mm-hmm. how to publish, mm-hmm. how to market, website, all this stuff I'm doing by myself because I am doing all of it by myself. All the website work is done by me. All the publishing, all of the – everything is done by me except now I'm helping with some development work. So the designs I don't do, development I don't do, but prior to this, I mean, even artwork I was doing, but I'm, I'm giving up on that too because I just don't have time. So, so you're you're kind of 
paying the dues now for what you hope will pay off later. And that's what I'm hoping now is, is that I'm getting to a point where I can start to do thousands of copies and, and, and start to make a little bit more at this. Okay. Well, I just, I just went ahead and uh, put the CPO down for Blenheim because I don't want to get uh, cut out of the, of the lower price. I question for you on the CPO. I've noticed it's a very interesting, um, it's a very interesting system you have. You don't actually keep any credit card numbers and you don't uh, charge people automatically. It's up to them. Is that right? That is correct. Because handling credit cards, especially in this day and age, the security levels that you have to have is just, it would break me. And if I got hacked and some people lost their credit card numbers, that would not be good for anybody. Not for me and not for them. It would probably put me out of business yeah. just because of reputation. Right. So I don't want to handle anybody's credit card numbers. And I don't want to be tasked with having to charge all that stuff. Again, one person trying to do this. There's when and I so I, I don't I don't hold any credit card information. I don't even hold their address. All I want is their name, their email address, and what country they live in, mm-hmm. just so I can calculate shipping outside the U.S. and shipping inside the U.S. So that's all a customer has to submit to me when they create a, a CPO account, and then they pre-order a game. I take nothing up front. I don't even charge for the game until typically until I have everything in the warehouse and I'm starting to box up. Now, I might start two weeks early, but that would probably be like right now I've got the four battles in Spain coming out, and um, I'm going to start taking money for that. But it's, it's the boxes are here, the counters are here, and everything will be here in two weeks, and then we'll, we'll start shipping. So, And so at that point in time when I think that close enough that nothing else is going to slow me down or if it does delay it, maybe it's a week or two, um, then I'll, I'll emails go out, customers go follow the link in the email to my CPO payment page where they add the game to their cart and they check out and they go to they pay through PayPal, either using their PayPal account or their credit card. And then PayPal handles all of the all of the, the, the liability for the security. And they take a fee, but every credit card transaction comes with a fee that sure. I have to pay. So, yeah, I don't want to have anything to do with any of that sort of stuff because it's just overly complex for, the again, the level of money that, that's being talked about here. If I was making half a million dollars a year, my concerns would be different. Right, right. So but it's a very good system, and I'm not taking anybody's money before the game is ready. And that people really seem to appreciate that. I said that I was going to do that from the beginning, and I and I haven't changed that. I don't want to be holding people's money like other companies have done. And because I know invariably this is not my full time job. I've got another job. I've got a wife. I've got five acres. I've got four horses. Hmm. I've got a myriad of things that can inter interfere with my process that can slow off my schedule and uh i just don't want to be holding their money and and not for, to mention the production can be a problem too if, if there were to be a production problem and so that's it is different uh, a little bit different than some of the other companies but uh, that's how i've been going to operate as long as i'm in business okay and and <clears throat> tell me that how, how many games do you publish a year would you say um, averaging three now, mm-hmm. uh, roughly, not quite. By the end of this year, I'll be real close. Um, I, I just had a question about this on the customer because they, they saw the list of 20 and they said, well, gosh, right now I've probably got 24 games pre-ordered with you. How long is it going to take me to see all those? And I'm getting out about four games a year now, and I hope to increase that up to six. So even at six, it'll still take four years to get all 
those games too. But again, that can change for a variety of reasons. Again, if a, if a game comes and it's virtually finished, mm-hmm. and, and sometimes the designers will even do their own artwork, Kim Kanger for one. Again, the reason I have three of his games published already is because he did all of his own artwork. Uh-huh. His own design, development, and artwork. So he's he's the trifecta. I mean, <laughs> the fact that he wants to wants me to publish his games is such a bonus for me. It's, it's his reputation has helped build my reputation. Yeah, well, his games are great. I mean, I, I they are they yeah, are so fantastic. I was able to talk to him on the podcast. He's a very interesting guy. Um, tell me about uh, Solitaire Games. Uh, the um, the your your B seventeen. Uh, update is a solitaire game. Your best seller, your B29 Super Fortress, is a solitaire game. But I don't see many more solitaire games on your list. Is there? Uh, is that just because people haven't submitted them, or do you have some uh, preference for games that people play against other people? What's the story there? Um, it, it comes down to submissions uh, for a large part. Um, B29, the solitaire, was is the best seller. I mean, if you count Kyber Pass sales and my sale Mm -hmm. and um the quickest game that sold out was picket duty which was a solitaire game by steve dixon as well he did oh yes picket duty yeah yeah that that sold out that print run sold out faster than any other game i published uh so that's up for reprint now um so it kind of depends it's and then, but I do have another one called Miracle at Dunkirk. Maybe you missed that. That's a solitaire. Game. Oh, is that? Yeah, I did. I, I'm sorry. To, uh, I did see it. I didn't. Uh, I didn't notice that it was a solitaire game. Yep. And and solitaires are very popular. So B26 is is also a solitaire, but that's again along the same lines as Target for today. Right. Zeppelins, while not a solitaire, has a it's going to have a solitaire module, uh, an aspect to it, I should say. So I think most people will probably play it solitaire. Not a ton of decisions to be made. Other than, you know, there's some rudimentary decisions for the British player. But, I mean, you know, as far as where the airplanes are stationed or the, the AA is and stuff like that. So that, that'll that be easily played solitaire. And then Miracle of Dunkirk is, is another solitaire. Uh, the rest of them are pretty much, as you say, two-player games. I mean, solitaire is what a lot of people play, but Vassal is changing that. And now people, you know, have access to be playing people in other other parts of the world uh, in real time. I mean, play by email is one thing, but Vassal will let you do it, you know, in real time. So it's uh, it's changing how things get. A lot of people like the solitaire aspects still. So right. you know, I'll always look at a solitaire submission. Hmm. Okay. If you have one in mind that you're thinking about designing. If if um, if I have one in no I have, I don't have anything in mind but I'm uh, just curious because uh, I thought you were testing the waters oh no 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 I wish I you know I wish uh, I um, I'm just curious about the you know the sort of distribution there's some publishers that uh, Victory Point seems to to put out a lot of solitaire games um, and I, and I'm I'm sort of on two minds about the whole idea of solitaire um, there's some really good solitaire games out there uh, the uh, D Day series by uh, John Butterfield I think is fantastic. Um, you know, and these things sell well. Um, but on the other hand, I, while I love a good Saltair design, I don't, I, I'm not one that's going to break out a Saltair game. I, I, I much more enjoy playing the game against a person and talking to that person and interacting with them. So if I have, you know, three hours to play a game, I'm going to always choose uh, an opponent if I, if I can find one. And, and fortunately with the internet and with living in an area where there are quite a few war gamers i can generally get somebody to play whatever it is that i want just have to 
get our times together. But um, but I, I'm yeah, I was I was just wondering about your your sort of uh, opinion on on solitary games. Yeah, we did we did miss one. We also has been on the list for a while, but is nearing completion is Red vs. Reverse, the Battle of Colenso. Mm. That's a solitary game. Is it okay? Because the the boar really have no nothing to do but sit in the high hills and defend and take shots at the British. The British have the difficult time. They have to reach the river and, and make it to the off the map so they can uh, relieve relieve the siege of, of Ladysmith. But so that's that is another uh, uh, a solitary game that will be coming out next year as well. So okay. the development is done on that one. So, so that's quite one. a few. Okay. Well then So actually there are more yeah one I think that I don't either, but then we start talking, and then I realize, oh, there's this one, oh, there's that one. So, yeah, but but I'm in agreement. I would, for just like you, I would do the same thing. I'd pick a, a two-player game over a solitaire game. Hmm. Okay. Um, well, I'm <clears throat> I'm so glad that we had this opportunity to talk about the uh, the economics of becoming uh, rich and famous, uh, publishing uh, solitaire or publishing uh, independent uh, board war games. It's it's interesting to me to know that you have a um, a, a regular job, so you're not you know depending on these games to uh, to uh, you know put food on your table. Uh, that that's um, I and I and I always think I hear people who you know want to uh, want to make a living at being board game designers, and and I guess there, if you want to be a historical board war game designer, that's you've already put your put some real. Uh, real handicaps uh in in your path because yes you have your yeah i i don't know if anyone does it as a living i mean you know there's people who've had a lot of games published vance von boris uh mark herman i i still none of them would i sus- suspect none of them would be supporting themselves designing right. or even publishing i mean gmt can do it mmp can do it columbia games maybe i'm not exactly sure but by and large, the people who are involved in this hobby are doing other things, and this is an extension of their hobby. I mean, for, for whatever reason, I just took a real liking to this aspect of running my own company and mm-hmm. being involved in all of this stuff. I, I could have just done artwork and just said, oh, I'll do it for GMT. I'll do it for whoever wants to pay me to do the artwork or or somehow been involved in the in the process but for some reason i i was crazy enough to think that this would be the fun way to be involved mm-hmm. boxes in my house all the time yeah of, of different nature but obviously i must be enjoying it i'm 55 now 10 more years i'll be retired or if, if this doesn't uh you know happen sooner that i can say well i i have another job but i actually have gone from full-time to part-time so i, I see can put more effort into the company okay well, that's, in, that's in order to make this pay on a reasonable level of of income so let's just i would have to sell like 25 games a day every day mm-hmm. 365 days a year that's a lot of games that's a lot of games to sell yeah, yeah on a constant basis and not have any that that i published 1500 copies of and only end up selling 300 copies and i'm losing money on i mean so there's a good bit of work that would have to be done, even just to shipping. How many games is that? I don't know that I know that off the top, well, but I know we're games a day, and you're talking about against our time here. Yeah, well, you're seven, nine thousand games a year. So yeah. just shipping nine thousand games a year is, yeah. is a lot of work. Yeah. Wow. So, well, uh, maybe someday you'll get to that point, and then you maybe you can hire a second person. 
Well, I mean, if, if even if, yeah, and hire a second person. <laughs> I, I kind of do. My wife gets dragged into the CPO releases and into boxing and all that. I mean, she has her own things that she's doing, but she does help me and just lives with all this. Because I live with four horses and five acres, so it, it's a trade-off. But um, even if it doesn't come to the point where it's a company that's going to sustain me in 10 years, I'll be retired. It's certainly going to be a great retirement income and a great right. retirement right. You know, way to spend my time. Sure. I'm not going to just retire, sit in front of the TV, and wait to die. I'll, right. just, I'll keep doing this. And, 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 it'll, and it'll be a nice a nice uh, uh, sub uh, additional income, you know, to come in. So it doesn't have, I don't know that I necessarily want to have a company where I have employees and I have to worry about them. And sure. if I don't have another game coming out, then, then I'm not going to be able to pay them and then their kids aren't going to be able to eat. And right. Just, it, it becomes a lot more. And even though this is a ton of work, I'm still enjoying it. So I got to keep it enjoyable or else it's going to kill me. Great. Well, I hope you do enjoy it because uh, I I have a, at least ten, if not more, games pre-ordered off your list. So uh, at this rate, maybe in three years, I'll have them all. Well, yeah. If you but if you have four battles in Spain, Rosebud Creek, and Little Bighorn pre-ordered, you'll have those by the end of the year. Yeah. It, it all goes well. I, I, Rosebud and Little Bighorn are gonna be really close. I mean, I should get them out in December. Uh-huh. Things are moving along very nicely. But so you'll have you if those three are on your list, you'll have three off. Okay, perfect. Here's another year. Well, I, 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 I've added more, so it's, it's just going to be one of these never-ending uh, things. But uh, I will uh, – thanks for talking so much. I will have a link to your website. People can, and can peruse your offerings, uh, maybe get some of those, uh, some of those Canadian uh, Rebellion games uh, bumped up a little bit. Uh, those are my, kind of my, my personal favorites. Definitely get some more interest in those, and then we'll try to get them published. They're not massive games. They wouldn't take that much to get out there. All right. You hear that, Canadian listeners? Uh, we need to show some uh, some Canadian pride here. I, I've already I've already done my part. I pre-ordered, so it's uh, it's up to you guys. So all right. all right. Well, Bruce, again, thank you for the for the opportunity to talk about war games and Legion war games and, and things that I like. I like so. I appreciate the, your time. Thanks for your time. Talking about war games is uh, is a great way for me to just uh, uh, pleasurably spend just about as much time as I, I we could we could have this conversation for hours. But I think the listeners uh, would at some point turn us off. So I will uh, say thank you, and uh, everybody will be back next week with another podcast. Uh, until then, good night.